G'day, humans. Welcome to your refuge from everyday squabbles. This is the place where we can lift our heads and think about things from a more enlightened perspective than we might in the normal everyday course of events. There are certainly no taboos on this show. We can go beyond the echo chambers of social media feeds and simply talk about good arguments and bad arguments. I am here to sniff out the difference. A lot of the things we talk about will be wise, a lot will be deeply unwise, some will be funny, some scientific, some of them ugly, but all of these conversations, I hope, will make some of us just a little uncomfortable. What a bloody treasure today's guest is. Tim Flannery is a household name in Australia, probably one of the most popular, beloved, controversial and respected scientists in the country. He won the most prestigious award that Australia ever offers, the Australian of the Year Award. He was the Australian of the Year in 2007, having been named the Australian Humanist of the Year in 2005. He is a mammalogist. Mammologist? What's a person who studies mammals? Whatever that is. A paleontologist by training and started out working, looking into the incredible animals who used to exist in ancient times on this vast continent of ours. Uh, and he's an environmentalist and conservationist and an explorer and now a, pub- a public science figure. He was the head of the Climate Commission, which the federal government uh, established to provide information on climate change to the public. Uh, that was then abolished um, by a conservative government run by Tony Abbott. Uh, it was one of the first things that the Abbott government did. Uh, so Tim Flannery went on to join a bunch of his other sacked uh, climate fire and emergency commissioners to form an independent body called the Climate Council, uh, which is now funded totally by the community, including myself, I'm a supporter, uh, and they provide independent climate science to the Australian public. He started out running the Australian Museum. Well, he didn't start out there. That's a pretty big gig to start out with, but that was where he first came to national prominence. Uh, And he was a principal research scientist there doing incredible work, like discovering dozens of different species of native kangaroos, saving the bandicoot population on North Head uh, in Sydney. He went to Harvard University for a year, not as a student, as a as a professor, he was the he was the chair of Australian studies at Harvard University in 1999, which is a, a rotating position that is prestigious for Australians to hold, obviously. Um, but beyond all of that, he's just a person who has big thoughts about the biggest issues that face us. So this is less of a conversation narrowly about science or about climate. We talk a bit about climate, but this is, don't worry, this is not us complaining about how terrible things are going to be in the future. This is us drilling into the mind of someone who has spent his life inhaling and ingesting the majesty of science. I hope you enjoy this dance as much as I did with the one and only Tim Flannery. go out on excursions to uh, to the Hawkesbury, there was no radius that you couldn't go to. You just, you know, weren't yeah. really allowed to see anybody. So we'd go up and we'd do day trips to Dangar Island and go out to oh, wow. um, to Great Mackerel Beach. And, you know, so it's very yeah. close to my heart. I think when we can afford to, we'll get a, a weekender on, on the Hawkesbury. 
Great. Well, yeah. we're further west. We're at Cobra Point in, on Barara Creek, just at the mouth of Barara Beautiful. Creek. Beautiful. And it's very cheap up here still because <laughs> wow. we've got no no services, whatever. It's all standalone electricity, standalone water. That would be water great. All the rest. Yeah, it's nice. We, we It takes a while, a bit of getting used to, but we're 15 kilometres from the nearest road, so mm. you know, the boat is pretty essential. Well, I mean, I'm just thinking about the kids. Once the kids are five or six, that's going to be great. Mm. Having no, oh God, it's a massive adventure. Yeah, yeah, it's lovely. Our little boy, who's eight, he just adores it. He's a, yeah, that's wonderful. So much to do. Yeah. What interested? Well, I won't do a big intro here, Tim. We can just I'll just pick this up wherever we want to. But I'm interested in what interested you as a kid. Oh, um, gee, I, I was always interested in nature, Josh. You know. Um, I grew up in Melbourne uh, on what was then the outer outer suburbs of Melbourne, but was very quickly being urbanised. And uh, I remember the environment being trashed, you know, really thoughtlessly. And uh, that had a big impact on me. So I love nature. I love the bay, you know, fishing, snorkeling, swimming, looking for fossils. That was kind of my life, really. So, when you uh, say nature was being trashed, in what form? Well, the suburbs were expanding very quickly. So there was massive housing development. In our area, there was massive industrialization. So there was a huge area of swamp land that was converted to factories and, you know, highly polluting factories. And we had, uh, we had some of the most beautiful cliffs on Port Phillip Bay, actually, just in, just near our house. And, um, they were turned into a garbage dump. People just started dumping car bodies, the council actually, and refrigerators and all sorts of crap into the bay. So off those cliffs, just covering them up. So. It was kind of tragic, really. Were you angry? Yeah, I was. I was very angry. I think uh, that anger's still with me, really, about the, what was called development. Mm. Did or you progress? I remember my yeah. calling it progress. So, did you? Were you? I'm just trying to get a feel for what your sort of emotion was as you started to develop your sense of what you wanted to do with your life. Were you? Were you trying to fight back? Were you trying to use your anger to fight back against that, or were you trying to use your passion for the natural? world in a in a positive way or was it a bit of both look i think um well, that's a really good question i mean the reality was that i i think i took took refuge at a fairly early age in in the past because there was this unbelievable richness of fossils all around victoria and you could see a victoria that was grand and wonderful you know through these fossil deposits so i was i became a a kind of an absolute kind of freak I wanted to be a paleontologist which is what I became eventually but I didn't have much of a way of fighting back you know when you're a teenager or whatever so um, that anger stayed with me and I guess that environmental streak as I've gained a voice has you know found an outlet Mm. so yeah that's interesting and paleontology connected you to something that was longer and more distant and kind of made those worries about the the trashed car bodies in Victoria seem like they were transient yeah, I think so. It's it sort of, you know, I've very much lived in an imaginary world for a little while as a teenager, and that imaginary world was the lost world of Port Phillip Bay as it was six million years ago. You know, you could dive into the bay and find the you know, metre-long length of a jawbone of a fossilised whale. You know, really? swim in the bay, yeah, or, or wow. teeth from these enormous sharks, you know, that were there and fish bones and shells and all sorts of things. So it was kind of – it was – you know, when I was diving, it was like I was back there in the past. I was in the modern bay, but my mm. imagination was really back in this distant, lost Port Phillip Bay, you know. 
I'm hopeful that my three-year-old will follow in your footsteps because he's completely obsessed with dinosaurs in a way that seems to even transcend <laughs> the, uh, the the infatuation that most toddlers have towards dinosaurs. But Fantastic. what since you talk about the imagination of what Port Phillip Bay was like six million years ago, what was Australia like six million years ago? Oh well, it was a somewhat different place. Um, you know, the the inland was wetter, although it was still a very open environment. You know, grasslands and so forth. Uh, there was lots of herds of large marsupials, gigantic birds, um, you know, uh, lizard goannas the size of crocodiles on land. I mean, it was a rich place. And the East Coast, of course, was was different. We In Victoria, for example, um, you know, in the waters of the bay or the ancient bay, there was uh, right whales, smaller than modern ones, but not so different. There was gigantic sharks, bigger than anything that, that's alive today. There were huge penguins as tall as a person. Um, and on My land, toddler would was... probably be able to suggest that the sharks might have been megalodons. Yeah, were megalodons and various other species as well, yes. So, yeah, I found some megalodon shark teeth as a child, as a teenager, which was one of the great experiences of my life. You know? Fantastic. Uh, and can... and... Yeah, yeah. Sorry, finish the yeah, thought. But, I, I but on land, it was kind of rainforesty and probably somewhat similar to parts of New Guinea today. You know, what do you do with it? What do you do with all this? Like, when once you become a paleontologist and you're researching all of this stuff, where does like where does your future? What in your future is beckoning to you? For me now? No, no, things. sorry, at the time, you know, at the time that you're sort of oh. becoming a paleontologist, you're, you're yeah, exploring yeah. all this stuff, you're kind of thinking, I want to live in this fantastical universe of six million years ago. Um, like, what do you do with it? Well, I look, I was um, went to a Catholic boys' school that I absolutely hated and um, did poorly academically and so poorly, in fact, I couldn't enrol in a science course when I left school and went to university. Um, but I was still mad keen. I was desperate to become a paleontologist. But I studied um, English and history, which I, I absolutely loved. I, I came to really deeply appreciate it, and um, and particularly drama. You know, I loved that. Uh, you know, Shakespeare and the ancient Greek plays and medieval mystery plays and all that stuff. Um, at the end of it, though, realised I, you know, the only path open to me really is to be a school teacher, and I just didn't have the guts to be a school teacher. I was just out of school myself, so I was um, at, at the museum uh, doing volunteer work, and the curator of, ma of fossils at the museum said to me, "You know, there's a real shortage of geologists at the moment. There's a company called Poseidon. There's a massive boom. They want all of the geologists for exploration. Why don't you go to Monash, where my wife teaches, and see if you can enrol in a master's prelim, you know, to do geology." So I did that, and I was astonished they accepted me. They must have been truly desperate for geologists, <laughs> but they did accept me. By the time I'd finished my master's, though, the boom had turned into a massive bust, and all of the geologists <laughs> were driving taxis. So, so I ended up uh, coming to the University of New South Wales and doing a PhD in biological sciences. I love, uh, I love the idea that still. I love the idea that you'd get in a cab, and instead of the cabbie giving you political opinions about immigration, they'd be talking to you about the different strata of geological uh, influences in on yeah, the continent. Absolutely, yeah, mineral deposits and all the rest of it. Yeah, <laughs> metamorphism. <laughs> so anyway, so that was the world. So um, I ended up uh, enrolling in this PhD. Uh, studied the evolution of kangaroos, actually. Named a lot of kangaroos. Made my first trip to New Guinea. Yeah, just on, on that, kangaroos, sorry to interrupt you, but did you discover a new, a, a never-before-discovered species of tree kangaroo? 
I've discovered five different species of tree kangaroos. There you go. Actually. Pardon me. There's only seventeen known, but I've found five of them, which are you know there was that was a. Uh, in New Guinea, because they're large, rare mammals, you know, you've got to spend a lot of time with local people and local tribes and communities to to find them. And uh, I just put in the time, I guess. was lucky, very lucky. Amazing. And you found them in New Guinea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are they in, indigenous in to New Guinea or to or to Australia or both? They're, they're, uh, there's, there's two species in Australia. There's a lot of fossil species in Australia. Um, but the New Guinea has 15 species still. And, and is that um, because you know, they were connected live... from when that from when New Guinea was part of Australia, part of the same landmass? That's right. Yeah, a long time ago, they've probably been there five, six million years. And um, you know, in the high alpine mountains of West Papua, where there's still glaciers, you know, there's one species of tree kangaroo that's only found found like above the tree line. You know, in the alpine environments, and I discovered that one. It looks like a little panda. Most amazing thing. So, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of that was a highlight, really. I guess of my life as a biologist. Wow. So sorry, I interrupted you there. So yeah, you went to Papua New Guinea. What happened next? Yeah, and um, I, I, so I ended up finishing the PhD. And um, what do you do for a job? You know. So I went down to the local unemployment department. I had to figure out what it was called back then. You know, I had a baby on the way. It was born, my oldest son was born three weeks after I finished, and um, you know, enrolled for my unemployment. And the guy I remember interviewed me and said, "Well, what do you do?" I said, "Well, I've studied the evolution of kangaroos." He sort of face fell, you know. So, <laughs> so I was on the dole for a little while. But um, this job opened up at the Australian Museum in Sydney. They wanted a curator of mammals uh, or a curator of birds. And there was like hundreds of applicants, I remember. And uh, so I applied for that. And um, lo and behold, I got the job. You know, it was freakish because at the job interview, um, one of the people who was uh, interviewing me asked me about a very obscure rat from New Guinea and I'd got to the interview early and I'd gone into the mammal collection just to spend some time really but was looking at this rat and so I, I came up with the absolutely right answer about this rat <laughs> what it was and he kind of looked impressed you know so so anyway I got this job and it was just never like hurts a to get there early the Tim it never hurts to get there early no. That's right, Josh. It's true. But um, so it was like a gift from the gods. And uh, I remember, um, you know, I was sitting at a desk. I was, I think I was being paid like the, like 27,000 bucks a year or something. It seemed like an absolute fortune to me, you know, um, no money to do any research. I'd have to raise all of that myself, but I could go anywhere in the world. You know, if I wanted to study dolphins off Antarctica, man, I could do it. If I wanted to study polar bears, if I wanted to study red kangaroos, I could do it. I knew what I wanted to do, which was study the mammals of the islands of the Southwest Pacific and New Guinea, you know. So I spent the most wonderful 15 years of my life uh, climbing almost every high mountain in that region, describing, you know, discovering about 30 mammal species, meeting uncontacted tribes, you know, just, it was like, it's just incredible experience. Mm. What do you think that the layperson doesn't get about the natural world that you wish they would? Well, Josh, I'd say if, if there's any music lovers listening to this, um, you know, and you're listening to an opera, you know the story of the opera, you know the history of the singers, you know the music, you know the composer, and that brings a richness, doesn't it, to the experience of listening to the opera. Well, when I look at a forest... I just don't see green, right? It's like I know this tree, I know its history, I know how it evolved, I know what pollinates it, I know why it grows in that very spot and not the little spot next door. And there's a richness that's symphonic in the natural world. If you can key in to the evolutionary history and to the diversity of that world, 
So to me, it's a it's a massively deep and engaging experience. It's interesting. Um, and the past is like that too. It, yeah, it's interesting you say that because one of my best mates uh, is a scuba diver, as am I, and he's a he's a scientist. He's one of Australia's leading water scientists, and I remember asking him why he didn't become a marine biologist since he loves absolutely adores scuba diving and the underwater environment. And he said, I wanted it to remain mysterious. I wanted it to stay at arm's length. Like I I didn't want to understand it all. I wanted it to still seem fantastical and magical because (laughs) I know so much about this other field of of science. I didn't want to sort of almost contaminate it. Um, And I don't know how I feel about that, that attitude, but what do you make of it? I can really understand it. Um, I guess, though, Josh, you know, for for me, the environments that I've been working in and the paleontology, I mean, they're so diverse and so cryptic that you could study them for a lifetime and still be none the wiser. You know, <laughs> we're still yeah. just opening the door to it. So, so yes, I can understand, but I think in my experience, I've I haven't minded studying it and diving in deep to certain little areas, you know, and getting a greater understanding. But there's still plenty of mystery out there for me. But when you look at a jungle, the fact of the fact that you understand more than the layperson does is something that you find enriching and fulfilling, not something that you find reductionist. It's totally. It is like listening to a, a symphony. You know, it's listening. The complexity of it is marvelous, and and the, the pieces. Are, you know, people think of jungles as being sort of random or haphazard, and of gardens as being ordered, but the opposite is true. Jungles are unbelievably ordered. Every leaf is growing exactly where it is for very, very good reasons. A garden is this forced thing where we force a, a, a kind of a, a view on nature and everything is out of place. So so if once you understand that incredible uh, order of nature, it opens the door to an understanding of the beauty, I think, and complexity of those, those rainforests or other environments. How is it ordered? It's ordered by the laws of physics and, and by the, the climate, you know. So light is incredibly important. The chemistry of the plants growing around that plant is, is astonishingly important. The predators that are, are present, uh, the predators of the predators, the predators of the herbivores that might <laughs> eat that leaf are all determining why things grow where they do. And um, once you understand that and, and kind of look at it, you, you, you do see this, this amazing, complex and wondrous world. And what can knock that that order out of equilibrium, Tim? I mean, we're dealing at the moment with the the looming reality of climate chaos. But let's just before we get there, let's just talk about more localized effects because I'm really struck by it. I'd never thought about gardens that way and jungles that way. Um, are there presumably that order is in a constant state of disequilibrium, being buffeted around by the I don't know, the evolutionary imperatives of each species trying to propagate and trying to get a, get ahead. Um, is it in a state of, uh, of, decli- of either decline or ascendance and never perfect equilibrium? Yes, look, it never reaches a perfect equilibrium, that's for sure. It, it is always changing and ever adapting. Um, but, you know, by and large, in, in if you take the long view of Earth history, I guess new species evolve, they may move in, new species invade and add to that complexity. Um, but that's a very, very slow process. So what we see more is like a, uh, it's, 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 it fluctuations within bounds, you know. Mm. But when you start adding the human 
impact, whether it's through rapidly changing climate or through deforestation or um, overhunting bushmeat or whatever, um, you know, you start to see a, a, an impoverishment of those ecosystems. And, and it's like seeing triggering cascades of, of extinction be, because the interrelationship of the parts is so intricate. You start seeing uh, species, uh, interdependent species vanish. So you might remove one, but that species then has a knock-on effect. The loss of that species has a knock-on effect to many others. Uh, look, I'll give you some examples of this, not from New Guinea, but from South America, where it's been studied very well, where you know people, there's a native pig-like animal in the South American rainforest called a peccary, and um, peccaries use wallows, so they dig holes and the holes fill with water. And it turns out that um, if you get hunt out the peccaries, there's no more wallows, and therefore the frogs that breed in those wallows also all vanish. And those frogs prey on insects, including mosquitoes. So the mosquitoes and other species the frogs would normally eat tend to um, erupt in numbers. And among those species are some that eat the leaves of certain trees. So those trees then start to become overwhelmed by the, the volume of um, herbivores eating their leaves. And then the species that depend upon those trees are impacted and so forth. Wouldn't uh, can't the can't the case be made that any new predator who enters that ecosystem can have that kind of an impact? That's what I'm trying to get a handle on. Like, uh, there there is no stasis. I mean, what is different about Homo sapiens than other predators? Is it just that we're such good tool makers that we're much better at getting rid of these uh, these pig like mammals? Yeah, we, we can drive them into extinction. Of course, the numbers always fluctuate. So jaguars may locally depress, you know, that species. But by and large, um, other species don't drive, um, in special circumstances they can, but by and large, species that co-evolve don't drive each other into extinction. But we are very, very capable hunters. Um, do, you know, do you know the way I think about it, Josh? It's kind of like um, if you take Einstein's theory of general relativity, you know, that there's no such thing as gravity, but that what causes... The appearance of gravity is this a, a distortion of the space-time equilibrium, you know, mm. the space-time thing. If you think about that in ecological terms, you know, species have a, a tangible impact on each other through a similar sort of distortion of the, of the if you want to call it, ecological space-time, mm. you know. And, and humans are just so much more massive than anything else on the planet that the distortion we create is absolutely, it's like a black hole. Yeah, you know, right. Compared yeah. with other species. So that's, that's one way of thinking about that it. Is, that's interesting. And th there's that old metaphor of gravity as being a ball on a trampoline. Uh, you know, if you if you put a, a bowling ball on a trampoline, you just sit it there and you have other balls around it, they're, they're, they're going to roll towards it. And I suppose you could imagine that if there was a perfectly calibrated trampoline with lots of balls kind of perched all over it in, in a perfect equilibrium and then you threw a massive bowling ball onto it that, that would disrupt everything um so let's talk about climate chaos because that's the that's the obvious single way in which we're having an impact that has so many other cascading uh consequences for us i i feel like we're in a strange spot in terms of the public's where the public's head is uh i think one is either a catastrophist and deeply depressed or one is at the other end of the pole and just feels like, you know what, capitalism and technology is going to fix this the way that it has fixed everything and we're going to have to think our way out of it 
And at the end of the day, lots of the naysayers have been wrong about lots of things. So we can't necessarily trust the specificity of their predictions. And let's just see how we all go. What's wrong with those two polls? No, oh, wow. Um, can I start a step back to try to Please. answer this, Josh? Because yep. just to link the discussion with what we've talked about in terms of ecology. So I, I need to ask you a question. What do you think has created the Earth's climate system that is that we've enjoyed in a relatively stable state for so much of our evolutionary history? I mean, I guess some kind of interplay of animal and plant life together because it was very yeah. different before there was life, right? That's right. So life has given stability to the earth system in a sense. So, And, you know, scientists have come up with a name for that, which we call Gaia, you know, and Gaia tends towards equilibrium. So, and it, it's, it's, it's an outcome, an emergent property of extremely complex ecosystems and a dynamic earth. So, Isn't, you know, I, it, Tim, it, I understand Gaia as being, this is Jim Lovelock's idea. Yeah, I, I, I read the book when I was in my teens, but I regard it as being more of a, a, a spiritual ode to the idea that the combination of, of life on Earth and the planet itself and even its, even its non-living geology all came together to, to form some kind of a god almost or some kind of a conscious godlike pantheistic entity am i over reading into that i think maybe joshua at the basis of the hypothesis is the physical reality of the of the world and you know the people call it the earth climate system you know if you're a scientist and you're a physicist but you know gaia is a way of referring to the emergent properties that come out of this highly complex system i think in in a which is a kind of useful useful way of thinking about it um, but if we just go back to that that system and, and you think about the stability it's created despite a whole lot of perturbations, and it's by no means perfect. We've had asteroids knock into the planet causing massive extinctions. We've had ice ages and so forth. But change has generally been slow. So what we've done as humans is to upset that balance, that, that emergent property of Gaia by clearing forests, digging up fossil fuels and overfishing the oceans, destroying the oceans. So, um, you know, it, that, that's the starting point. Um, so what will happen in the next decade or two um, is kind of, I guess, we could focus on that and we could ask about the future of our civilization and so forth. But really the sort of the long-term solutions, uh, they're dependent upon a recognition of the role of the Earth climate system in creating and stabilising. Um, you know, mm. life on our planet. So I, I, I know that might seem like a tangential thing. No, it's interesting. You know, it's, it's useful. And, and it's also useful that you throw in the despoiling of the oceans and the cutting down of forests into that because those those two things don't just have implications for the climate. I mean, those are – it sounds like you're pointing to a bigger problem, to an even bigger problem than climate change. Well, yes, it, it is. It, it's the distortion of, of the ecological space-time equilibrium by this massive, massive black hole of a species mm. that's led to all of this. And, you know, we don't have to be that way, and there, there are some reasons for Do optimism. Do we not have to be that way? No, we don't. No, I don't think so. Um, there are, you know, there are many ways of living um, and, and uh, many ways of being. And I, I mean, think the, the pessimist in me or, uh, or the devil's advocate in me thinks – 
humans are always going to want to be more comfortable than they are and lots and lots of humans have gone from uh from lives of poverty and drudgery and toil and disease throughout most of human history in most places to increasingly comfortable lives of pleasure and plenty over the past century or two since the industrial revolution and now more and more people want that life in the developing world and so even if you were to click your fingers and and transition immediately from carbon from from burning fossil fuels to renewable energy people are going to want to eat fish instead of rice if they can and beef instead of you know lentils yeah um and that's going to have consequences and that bowling ball is just going to be as heavy as we can possibly make it until the earth pushes back and says you can't make it anymore mm. well look that's one in- interpretation josh for sure um i i see it a little bit differently i mean how would i start look um Let's look at that population issue because this is, it seems, pretty central to what you're talking about there. Um, you know, human population growth is now entering a phase where we are starting to see a tapering off and, indeed, in many countries, a reduction in terms of population. And it, I find this absolutely astonishing. Every other species that's ever existed on our planet, as Thomas Malthus knew, um, was regulated by, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, by, you know, drought, famine, disease and, and warfare or whatever it happens to be, you know, but, but or predation. Mm. We seem not to be. We, um, despite going through a period of very rapid growth, we're now entering a period of stability, which looks like it'll be followed by a, a period of slow decline. And I find that it, it's kind of like, it's, it's so miraculous, Josh, it reminds me of the fact that the moon during an eclipse precisely fits over the sun. <laughs> um, and without that, we would never have been able to test Einstein's theory of general relativity <laughs> without any <laughs> unbelievable coincidence. <laughs> if it is, who knows? Yeah. And, but this is it's very interesting stuff, these unique phenomena that we see that give you pause for deep thought. You mean so, because you mean it was an eclipse that enabled us to see the star behind the sun that we yeah, that see, was the actually light hidden behind the sun, but the light That's was it. bent around the sun because of the sun's by the sun's yeah. gravitational. Imagine if the field. if the moon was a bit closer or further away, or you know, as it has been in the past. But just at this moment, we're interested in exploring the universe. This the the moon shadow fits precisely over the sun <laughs> right creating enough shadow that we can see the bent <laughs> yeah. light from a distant star behind yeah okay yeah. cool so so how does that how does that how does your analogy now map map onto my uh, my previous point so here we are as a species which is self-regulating the only species in the history of life on earth ever that is self-regulating and not through any conscious decision about oh there's too many people on the planet but just through uh, a series of emergent forces that have arisen and that is a sense of individual well-being, a sense of wanting some of those things you were talking about, Josh, you know, wanting a better life, right? So instead of having 15 kids, I'm only going to have one or two, you know? Mm. So, so there are interesting complex phenomena going on here, which I find really interesting. The, you know, and just thinking about how those people live, if, if you were a hunter-gatherer eating elephants, or whatever you might eat, you know, large mammals in a forest, the world can only support a tiny number of people. If you're an agriculturalist, you've moved down in the trophic cascade to the point where you're eating plants, 
and those plants, you know, you, you, there's a hundred times as much energy as there would be in the, you know, the large mammals. Yeah. So you can have a larger population. We're now moving into a phase though where we are looking at development, uh, the development of artificial meats. We're looking at the development of uh, products using bacteria, archaea, and hydrogen that will replace bread. You know, this is where we're at. We're moving further down the trophic further mm. down the food pyramid to its very base, you see. And can you imagine a world, Josh, where we are sourcing our uh, wheat requirements from giant vats of archaea fed by wind turbines and solar panels? Sorry, what's putting archaea, hydrogen in? Oh, archaea are, are, are they're, they're little bacteria-like entities. They're the most primitive forms of life we know about. But yeah. they are they have an unbelievably complex uh, chemical pathways within them. They're they're sort of like the Swiss Army knife of life. They can do everything, whereas we can only do one thing. We can only use oxygen, but they can do and, everything. And can we farm them? Yes, there's people at the moment in in um, in Finland, a group called uh, Solar Foods, who are looking at how we use archaea to create all of the basic starches and proteins that are present in wheat. I mean, um, I'm uh, I, I love to hear you say that because I'm very bullish. I'm a very conflicted. Uh, eater of organic meat but conflicted about uh, about eating meat at all, both for environmental reasons but actually mainly just for, for moral reasons. But um, I, I'm very bullish on lab-grown meat and, you know, the possibility of, of creating animal protein flesh without sentience, without, without animal sentience. And I, I like the idea of, you know, eating insects and things like that instead of mm. farming animals and I loathe industrialised farming. But all of that seems to me to run a little bit counter to the sort of goddess, temple, Gaia, I am the world sort of uh, talk that you seem to be pointing to a little earlier. That to me seems to be part of the kind of bullish Silicon Valley tech nerd, we can think our way out of all of our problems strain of humankind. And I'm not sure which one to put my faith in. Yeah. Well, look, I, I don't know whether we can think our way out of our problems, um, but what other way out is there? Well, I suppose some would say, I suppose some would say, you know, return to a much simpler way of life, try to try to have a revolution in our consciousness so that we're not constantly fucking around with nature. Instead, we're obeying, uh, you know, the, the, the dictates of, of nature and live just much more humbly and in tune with the cosmos than we currently do. And that might not be the type, that type of person might not be the type of person who's tinkering around with Finnish, uh, you know, microbes to produce no. vast oceans of wheat. Well, exactly. And look, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that view. And I think that ultimately it's probably quite a fulfilling lifestyle to live that way. Hmm. But the difficulty we face at the moment is that the people of China and India are so far from thinking about that, um, and sub-Saharan Africa, that that you know we can try, and I think it's good. The more people live like that, the better. But we're doubtless going to need to think our way out of the problem as well. Yeah, you know, there's we already too much CO two in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're on time. Yeah, uh, and, so and be both. But you know, the interesting thing is, Josh, with all of this, you know, once you reach a certain level of affluence, and we talked about the impact of that on population growth. You know, the desire to have lots of children or not. You know. The question arises, what is life really all about? And that fundamental question, I think, 
what are we about? Why are we here? That question will start driving human evolution and development at a later stage, I think, in our, in our journey. Mm. But at the moment, not at the moment, you know, my, my grandparents, you know, they lived through the Great Depression. My parents were born during a depression. They, you know, the, the Second World War was fought in their lifetimes. You know, they, they were a shell shock generation. Um, we're, we're just emerging from that now. So, and that this kind of obsession with develop with accumulating material wealth is sort of symptomatic of that generation in a way that's just emerged out of dire poverty and trauma. So I think we can't expect to go straight from that into this more deeply questioning uh, kind of human that mm. I think will be more common in future. You think it will? Yeah, I do, because once you've got time and leisure, um, what is there that you do? You do think about that. Why are we here? What are we for? What's life really about? Mm. Do you think that – I think there's a common misconception that if we do something aggressive about climate, that that'll make us poorer. Is that a misconception? It's a total mis misconception. Um, you know, the, the most expensive energy at the moment is the most polluting energy, yeah? So – and just think of the is it, Isn't coal of, still cheap? No, it's not. No, no. Um, wind and solar are, for most of the world, way cheaper than coal, Yeah. So and that, that wasn't true five years ago, but it's true now because, you know, wind and solar, uh, they, they result from a manufacturing process that produces goods ever more efficiently and, and more cheaply the more they make of them. So, mm. you know, once you made a billion solar panels and, and a million wind turbines, you know a fair bit about how to make those things efficient and cheap. Yeah, right. And just lastly on climate, before we move on to, to, to more positive things, the, the I think there's a... Part of people, I get the sense from people that maybe part of their scepticism towards aggressive, taking aggressive action on climate is that they don't quite believe the most catastrophic predictions. And so they think that if the most catastrophic ones aren't going to come true, then we shouldn't do anything. And this frustrates me. And I feel like sometimes maybe people on our side of the fence who do care about action on this have done ourselves a disservice by catastrophizing a bit too much and, and arguing that everyone's going to die in a in a in a fireball and humanity is going to face extinction whereas it might just be the case that things are going to get much more unstable much more expensive and just much more generally a pain in the ass in the future because populations are going to be destabilized there are going to be more refugees more famines there's going to be more bushfires and more droughts and it might just sort of vaguely suck like that for me is enough of a reason to do something. I don't need to believe that Sydney's going to be engulfed in a fireball. Do you have any thoughts about that messaging critique? Yeah, look, I, I do, Josh. I think, um, look, I don't believe anything, yeah, as a scientist. I don't believe things. I, I, I know that I can falsify things. I can prove things wrong, but I can't. I don't believe anything as such. But mm. what... I can do is work on the basis of probabilities, you know. So if it's probable or highly probable that an outcome will occur, then it concerns me. If it's particularly if it's a big, you know, immediate thing that we're talking about, and you know, can I just tell you a personal story, Josh, about mm. the Climate Council and the mega fires? You know, the Black Summer mega fires. You know, we had experts on the Climate Council who were almost tearing their hair out in April 2019, saying the conditions we're seeing on the ground are absolutely unprecedented. 
My father before me and me, who spent 50 years firefighting, have never seen anything like it. This is a catastrophe in the making. You know, um, we could not get a meeting with the Prime Minister to discuss mm. how dire this was. Um, and yet that guy, th those experts were right. You know, they were absolutely right. So the experts can see things sometimes we can't. Um, I would still work on the basis of probabilities. And the other thing we have to throw into the balance here is the fragility of our civilization. Like, I don't know how you feel, Josh, but I think a lot of people just assume it's going to go on, you know, as it is, no matter what. But when I look at the stresses that our society is facing just from COVID and the lockdowns, um, I can see a fragility there that, you know, as if if our food production systems are disrupted, if our water supply is disrupted, if we end up being financially challenged because of infrastructure damage or um, our societal fabric is challenged by, you know, mass refugee you know, migration and so forth, you can see it having a big impact upon our civilization. Our civilization is simply an unwritten agreement between all of us that we'll, mm. you know, act civilly towards a, towards each other. And that is fragile, I think, and, and we need to give it our best chance. That's horrifying, Tim. I hadn't really consciously made that final uh, leap of, yeah, I hadn't put that final piece of the jigsaw puzzle in place. That if you, But you're totally right. If you look at the, the consequences of, you know, just the, even just the Syrian refugee crisis in Europe leading arguably to the extra percentage point that you needed in the UK to get Brexit over the line, uh, as it was in the wake of huge billboards with images of people of colour kind of swarming the UK saying breaking point and so on. You know, that kind of just stirring up that sort of xenophobia to get it across the line. Or you think about the misinformation from Russia and misinformation on Facebook and that that helped lead to Donald Trump's election. And so far, all of the systems of democracy have held but you can imagine a self-reinforcing downward spiral of crises that batter us into a scenario in which our democracy is not so robust to withstand them. And you can imagine, yeah, things yeah, playing at just, the same. Yeah, and it's yeah. pretty, it, it, you know, the, the basic underlying condition would have to be simply that we get poorer each year rather than wealthier or stay the same. That right. would probably be enough. Right. And, you know, and if food prices go up, if, if infrastructure is being destroyed and we, we can't afford it, you can imagine how that might happen. And in the yeah. UK, you know, partly that was what was to blame. People in the, in the north, in the regions were losing, losing jobs and losing opportunity hmm. uh, as a result of various restructuring, you know, economic changes that led to that. So, so I just think, you know, we have to balance the scale of the threat against the fragility of the system we're trying to defend and protect. And not to mention, I mean, while you're talking about, I mentioned Syria and the, the, the refugee crisis playing into Brexit, but of course the refugee crisis itself was partly caused actually by a big drought and famine in Syria. I, I got into some uh, hot water in the States when I was living over there. I interviewed Bill Nye, the science guy, who's a uh, mm. who, you know famous uh, popularizer of science in the States. And this was during the Arab Spring. And he was saying, look, the thing we're not talking about about the Arab Spring is that, uh, you know, to a large extent, these revolutions came out of massive spikes in food prices that were caused by droughts linked to climate change. And yeah. of course, then the, the sort of Murdoch 
tabloid rags or went in and said, oh, you know, Bill Nye and Josh Zepps are saying that climate change caused the Arab Spring. It's that's a that's an oversimplification. But the stresses that climate change puts on ecosystems can lead to stresses and fractures in in economic and political systems as well. And it's interesting that you mention the April 2019 attempts to meet with the government about fire. I'd forgotten I'd forgotten about that until you just mentioned it because Greg Mullins, who I'm sure you know, the former boss of mm. uh, emergency services in New South Wales, mm. I was on the air on ABC Radio Sydney during the fires and he did a an iconic interview, for, I think for about half an hour. It may have been shorter, but it felt like half an hour in the first few days of January in 2020 in which the frustration in his voice and the emotion. I mean, we were all, I'm getting choked up just remembering how stressed out I was being on the air, feeling all the calls from people whose houses were burning down, who'd lost loved ones. And to talk to Greg, who had been the person, along with you, banging on the Prime Minister's door eight months previously, saying the conditions are perfect for a you know, a superstorm, a confluence of of mm. of factors coming together to create once in a century bushfires, and then they happen. Mm. I mean, it was like it was depressing, and it was also like being in a disaster movie. Well, look, it was it wasn't a once in a century fire, Josh. That was uh, absolutely unprecedented. You know, we'd had the driest two years in a row, back to back in the Murray-Darling Basin. Nothing like that had ever been seen in the country before. We had unprecedented hot conditions. Um, you know, everything was pointing to this being an extraordinary fire season. And when it's when it was over, we realised, you know, 21% of the nation's temperate broadleaf forest had been burned. In previous bushfire seasons, the maximum area burnt was 2%. So it was like an order of magnitude greater in its extent than anything we'd ever seen before. So, you know, the, the conditions were all there pointing to this horrific outcome. And we could have done, done so much better, Josh, if we'd been prepared. This was what was frustrating for Greg and the rest of the climate councillors and myself. You know, we simply wanted the federal government, the states and all the people in the regions to recognise that this was absolutely unprecedented and we needed to be, to be prepared at a level we'd never been prepared at before. In fact, I'm going to put in the audio of my conversation with uh, with Greg uh, into the episode here so the listener can enjoy it. Right. Um, if a foreign country had inflicted this scale of damage, I mean, Lord only knows how many bombs you'd need to inflict this level of, of carnage, or if terrorists had incinerated an area the size of Belgium in New South Wales, we would be all in, every airstrip would be commandeered, every ally would be engaged, every available aircraft would be flying sorties to, to help. And... I'm just wondering if if you think we're serious. No. Um, so I've worked with multiple prime ministers through my career. Um, uh, prime Minister Howard, Abbott, Rudd, Gillard. Um, we had disasters like the New Zealand earthquake, the Japan earthquake and tsunami, um, the Indian Ocean tsunami, sending aid overseas. Um, we had the Lint Cafe siege, and I watched prime ministers step up into leadership roles and they were asking constantly what's needed, what can we do? And there was no political partisanship. They were working with the opposition leader. They, um, I'm not seeing it. I'm just not seeing it and I don't understand it. And you're dead right. Now, 
our Prime Minister should be on the phone to Justin Trudeau from Canada right now saying, Justin, we need 20 or more of your water-scooping purpose-built water bombers that are in mothballs during your winter. Get them down here. Can you get them here in five days? Um, we d- at Batemans Bay the other day, and this is no criticism of the fire agencies, all we have is seven large air tankers in Australia. I was in California in November at the Kincaid fire up at Sonoma County. They had, uh, was 23, it would have been 35 large air tankers working that fire, plus dozens of helicopters. Now, we have lots of helicopters. I heard the Prime Minister's speech yesterday, and I found it very odd. Um, So he quoted numbers of aircraft, but they're little helicopters and little crop-dusting aircraft. The big ones, we've got seven we need more, but the fire chiefs, frankly, have their hands full dealing with this. They don't want to ask because the political masters will not like it. And I know from being in government, sometimes treasuries get square after the after the event. So they're just trying to deal with what they're dealing with. They're not going to say, oh, yes, we need more. Um, the government should be proactive, and I, I believe that's what, our Prime Minister should be doing is ringing around countries like France, Portugal, Spain, Canada that have all these purpose-built water-scooping aircraft that don't need the land to fill up, so they've got rapid turnaround, the 6,000 litres. That's a practical sort of thing. Now, the ADF are dying to help, but the national government kept saying, oh, they're not needed. They have so many capabilities that can be applied, and we're seeing it now. They can um, do base camps for firefighters, they can refuel trucks in the field. They can carry bulk water. They can transport firefighters. They can do evacuations. They can do, use sensing technologies. They need to be integrated as part of the effort. And um, my group and I were not criticising because, look, the paradigm of how we fought fires, we'd call on the military when we needed them, but we could see that this was just getting out of control. And, look... Just in yesterday, what really got me was the Prime Minister said a couple of times, these are natural disasters. They're natural. Sorry, Prime Minister, they're not. This is not. We've lost 600% more homes in New South Wales than our worst ever fire season since European settlement. 600% more. And we're going to lose so many more tomorrow. I'll probably be down there again. Um, when is a penny going to drop with this guy? Look, Greg, to be to be fair to the PM, he could say that even if we had transitioned to a zero-carbon economy many years ago, and even if not a single ounce of coal was being exported from Australia, it would still be possible for devastating bushfires to to occur. And one of the refrains that you hear coming out of the, the right and conservative talk media at the moment is about fuel management and about backburning, about that there's been a push by, by greenies not to manage fuel and to do proper backburns. Uh, and uh, and that that's to, to blame for this. Is there any credibility in that? None whatsoever. So I was watching fires run across people's lawns in Batemans Bay with one metre high flames. So in extreme conditions, in an extreme drought, now this is a drought that's underpinned by 20 years of drying, so 15 to 20% reduction in rainfall in on the south coast of New South Wales, the eastern coast of New, of New South Wales, over 20 years. So when the drought hits, it's that more intense. Now, everything burns. And I, I won't go into the chemistry and the physics of this, but it's actually very simple. So there's more available fuel. 
Now, I saw a fire up near Rapville at Grafton. We were called to a fire, we, and the locals said it burnt through two weeks ago. We got there, and the leaves, the burnt leaves from the trees had dropped on the ground, and they were burning again. One metre flames, we had a hectare of leaf dropper lights. So in extreme conditions like this, um, and, there, and there's been lots of hazard reductions done over the years, more done by national parks than in previous years, but the fires have burnt through those hazard-reduced areas. So this is the blame game. So we'll blame arsonists, we'll blame greenies. It's, it's a holistic thing. There's a whole lot of different things that need to come into the picture. Is there a logistical impediment why that is impossible? Do we not have enough pilots? Are there not enough no, airstrips? The or is impediment it... is the purse strings in Canberra. That's so ridiculous. They reluctantly... So there was a... Prime Minister Howard made, a, made an agreement with us in 2003, dollar for dollar, um, to lease aircraft. That amount was never increased. So the states and territories now pay 10 times what the federal government pay. So the fire chiefs pleaded while I... I um, I was still the head of our peak body, AFAC. I was president of AFAC, so full fire, fire and emergency services in Australia and New Zealand. We were pleading with the federal government to just kick the tin a bit more. A detailed business case has languished in Canberra for two years and then belatedly a couple of weeks ago, I think, to get the government off the hook, um, they said, oh, look, we'll give a one-off payment of $11 million. Well, too late, guys. <laughs> We weren't able to negotiate the leases, and but more is needed. Exactly what we predicted, all states are starting to burn. When they burn simultaneously, we can't share firefighters, we can't share trucks, and we're going to have, you know, we'll have one major um, aircraft in each state. And that's not going to do any good when you've got 100 fires alone in New South Wales. I mean, if you're right that it is a financial impediment, then that is absolutely and totally shameful. And also not just shameful, but a political non-starter as well. I mean, I hope that you're wrong. I hope that that's overly cynical because there's not, I haven't done a poll in the field, Greg, but I am absolutely certain that if you polled Australians about whether or not we should be taking financial considerations into account in our response to these fires, you would, there, would, there would be very, very few people who would say that we should allow these fires to burn a second longer than necessary and burn an additional one square, single square kilometre as a result of the fact that we don't want to spend money on it. Well, I can hear you being a bit angry. I'm furious because that is the case. And you keep hearing the government saying it's a state and territory responsibility. This is a national disaster. Every state is starting to burn. We don't have enough large aircraft. By the way, large aircraft don't put out fires. They can just give the firefighters on the ground an edge. But if you had 20, 30 of these medium-sized aircraft that have rapid turnaround you could make a material difference. We called on the Prime Minister to have a bipartisan approach and he said it's not needed, it's fine. Now he said he'll have a coag process as Anthony Albanese had requested in November. He has to be forced every inch of the way. I remember going to um, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and talking to the fire chief and they were just appalled at President Bush, how he sat in Washington and just sat on his hands. And yeah. and this is reminiscent of, of that to me. Greg, good on you. We appreciate everything that uh, you're doing. I know you're exhausted. We're all a bit exhausted, but not as, not, as, not, not as exhausted as you. Thanks for filling us in. Thanks, Josh. You got it. That's Greg Mullins, who's the former New South Wales Fire and Rescue Commissioner.
let's move on from climate change and bushfires and all of that that darkness uh, though are you a vegetarian tim no no i'm not i've uh, i i prob- i eat less meat than i ever used to but i still do eat some meat and you know part of the problem is josh a lot of the the vegetable food that's produced is unsustainable like wheat products, you know, the, the mass clearing that goes on and the soil degradation and the loss of carbon and the fossil fuels burned to make wheat is, is like, you know, <laughs> right. that's huge. So, so you know, I, I try to You're not giving me many options to feel good about myself, Tim. <laughs> well, look, it's not easy. We live in a system where, you know, polluting energy has been the main source and um, we need but to guess, move on from that, but there are no of, easy solutions. I mean, instead of thinking about the impact on the environment and on the climate, just thinking about the experience of what it's like to be a sentient creature, like as as a former paleontologist and as, well, not former, as a paleontologist and as someone who has been deeply interested in the evolution of uh, animal life, do you, like, how do you rationalise the slaughter of a a sentient creature just because its flesh tastes nice. I, I don't know how. Well, look, we are carnivores, um, you know, and I think as long as an animal's had a good life, um, its death is not um, is not the most important thing. Yeah, um, and, and as long as its death is, is humane. And, you know, the thing, you know, Samuel Johnson said it in the 18th century, you know, dogs are essentially immortal because they know nothing of death. Yeah, mm. and so and so we argue that we immortal because we'll never know death. We'll only know life, and this is true. And for, for animals, look, as in New Guinea, I've seen lots of animals killed. I've had to kill animals myself, and I know that um, that lack of awareness of death. If you can be humane about it, it, for the animal, if it's had a good life, that's the most important thing. So I, I detest, uh, you know, caged birds and pigs in crates and all this sort of stuff, but I don't mind eating meat as long as I know it's um the animal's been humanely killed and so you know I, I fish still and um and and kill my own fish and eat them and you know that's that's fine um with me so I guess I've got a bit of a different view um mm. Josh from from you about the um about life and death for animals so death's inevitable it's part of the cycle we'll all die yeah um, let's hope we can die as humanely as many of the animals that we kill I mean um, now now you're making me wonder whether or not there's something fundamentally detached about veganism you know or, or that there's a basic misunderstanding at the root of it that we are other from other than the natural environment when in fact we are part of the natural environment you know i'd love to be sitting up on the hawkesbury river on a boat <laughs> near where you are <laughs> fishing some of my warmest memories of my childhood are going to new zealand to my mum's a kiwi and fishing with yeah. her brother and, and sister on their boat yeah. uh yeah maybe there is well, no no guilt in that i don't know no, and it's got to be a cycle. You know, Josh, I, one of the things I dislike about our modern society is the way we deal with death and with bodies. You know, um, like in, in traditional African societies and some New Guinean societies, the a body of a dead person is, well, in Africa, they're thrown over the thornbush fence, you know, uh, and in the morning there is literally nothing there. They have been transformed into hyenas and lions and other yeah. wonderful creatures and are part of the great cycle of life. We don't do that, and I, I I find that problematic. You know, that's um, interesting. Yeah. How do you think animals become sentient? What do you think? You know, to get towards more as a more spiritual conversation, what, what is going on with atoms arranging themselves in such a way that sentience arises? Well, this is the 
great question, isn't it? That that goes back to that that idea of Gaia and that we were talking about earlier. Um, all I can say is that um, you know information organizes matter. It's it's axiomatic in the world we live in. Yeah, from the very you know, subatomic particles through to where we are, information organizes matter. So there's always um, a trend towards increasing complexity of organizational units, I think, in the universe, and we're part of that. You know, our human brains are the most complex computational and, and you know, organizational entities we know of in the entire universe. Um, and, and that has come about through a long, long coevolution. And you can see it as as information has tried to organize matter within the Gaia system, um, you know, we've had an increase in brain size over time um, until you know, today we've re- reached this position where our species has, where we have a sense of time and history that is very different from any other species and have a sense of the individual context, the individual place within that history that's very different from any other species. And we have a reach. We're the only part, really, of the Gaian system that looks at the Gaian whole and sees it. You know, Gaia knows itself through us and knows the universe through us. So um, I, it's one of the great mysteries. It's like that issue of why does the moon fit just over the sun? <laughs> why? You know? well, I tell you what, this is a bigger mystery than the moon fitting over the sun. I can handle it. I can, I, can, I can ascribe the moon fitting over the sun perfectly to chance, but I can't ascribe the evolution of the human mind to, to chance. And I'm not saying that I'm invoking a God, but uh, there is a there are, there are underlying principles that are completely gobsmacking. I mean, you know, natural selection is gobsmacking, the, the constants are gobsmacking, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, Einstein's discoveries are gobsmacking. The, that the whole thing works is beyond belief. Um, when you're talking about Gaia, though, are, are you are you invoking a kind of order or a kind of intelligence doing the ordering? Are you a spiritual person? Um, well, am I a spiritual person? Well, no. I let's exclude. Believe, that's I, a, that's I a bad question. In, it's too vague. No, Do, are you yeah, are you are you invoking an, an intelligence? I don't believe in an old man with a beard in the sky. Put it that way. Um, but there are things about the way the universe is, is ordered and. and you know, that, that big picture that, that do make me wonder deeply about the origins of the universe and about purpose and all the rest of it. And because I'm a paleontologist, Josh, I mean, I think about the long term, you know, I think about the emergence of self-awareness and human tool making, you know, so in the so recent past. And I think, well, what will it be like five million years from now? How far will we have passed from our solar system in the next five million years? You know, time is is long. And, and it's an unimaginable amount of time. Um, but will we be the piece of inf- the, the information system which will be organising matter in distant galaxies five million years from now? I don't know. Um, but th- these, are, these are profound questions, Josh, and I, I, um, we're just at the beginning of a journey, a very big journey. Do you think that artificial systems could do that? Do you think that there will be sentience or self-awareness in computers? It may well be. Maybe the the next iteration of that that intelligence will come from us building systems which can travel much more robustly and much further than we can. And that may be the case, but we still will be part of a chain as, you know, leading from those first archaea, those 
very primitive organisms right through um, to, to, to ourselves and onto a, a different future. I don't know the answer to that. I don't think we should have ego in it either as individuals or as um, a species, but mm. we can see the grand trajectory perhaps of this system that we don't understand um, doing marvellous things. I love you and your IKEA, Tim. I'm going to have to go and read up about IKEA. <laughs> uh, now I feel I feel I feel inadequate for for not knowing what they are. Um, I don't. I, I, I want to keep you too long, but I do want to wrap with with just picking your brain a little bit about coronavirus and about the pandemic, and and maybe getting your advice to people about how to think like uh, the greatest scientist in Australia, uh, which is a mantle that I'm giving you, uh, because I've been worried about what to make of people's rationality during the pandemic, the arguments about epidemiology, about lockdowns, about comparing it to the flu, now arguments about vaccines, vaccine hesitancy. I used to kind of think that vac- people who were, vac- who were hesitant about vaccines or who were deniers of climate science were anti-scientific. And it's very easy to say, oh, they're anti-scientific. But when I actually talk to them, they have a certain almost scrupulously scientific scepticism towards authority, a kind of hyper-scepticism, like do your research, you know, do your own research. And they're, they're hunting around in all the wrong places, namely social media and alternative fact websites, <clears throat> for dissident opinions about the, from mainstream opinions. And I've gotten worried that the, the noble sort of instinct in humans to not follow the pack, to not be sheep, to not take, uh, to not just swallow whatever your authority figures and leaders tell you to believe. I mean, this is the instinct that has motivated many a scientist over the the millennia. This is Galileo, this is Copernicus, this is Darwin, all bucking what they were told to believe. But that instinct is now I fear being perverted and twisted maybe by social media into avenues that are leading people down rabbit holes where it's no longer sufficient for us to say, oh, these people are just anti-scientific. They're taking a sort of a scientific investigatory approach. And my only conclusion is, well, maybe the world's too complicated and social media is too interconnected for us to be able to take that approach. And I should just listen to authorities now when it comes to big complicated things like epidemiology, infectious disease, and the climate. What do you make of that? Do you have any advice? Yeah, look, I I know exactly what you mean, Josh, by those people who are informed by their own inquiries into things. I mean, climate science is riddled with them. Wherever I go, speaking about this, there'll be an engineer who has looked at, you know, modelling or looked at something and has his own view. Usually it's a him, it's an older guy, you know. Um, but what is lacking in that that mindset is a um, the dispassionate the dispassionate view of the scientist that you go where the data leads you and you listen right across the board, even to things that may seem nonsensical. You know, this is... It's, it's part of that scientific protocol that you actually um, do the full due diligence. Don't just do your bit, but talk to others who might know more. And, you know, there's a, it's almost like a, a relic of the sort of frontier, you know, 
We all used to be able to fix our cars. Do you remember that, Josh? We could fix our cars on motorbikes. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm told that exi- I'm told there was such a time. <laughs> there was such a time, right? And a lot of these guys have grown up in that time, right? So if they can fix their car, they can fix the climate system. So that's a sort of general belief. But today, you know, my car's a black box for me. I wouldn't know where to begin. Mm. Um, even though I used to have a motorbike that I could maintain, I'd do everything, change the diff, change everything. But, you know, that was, that was a different age. Um, so I, I kind of I can hear I hear exactly what you're saying, but I do think we need a a more humble, less certain, um, more engaged approach for both things. You know, people forget so quickly. I mean, I'd be interested to know with the anti-vaxxers, for example, how many of them had childhood vaccinations that spared them from you know everything from polio to measles to to, to whatever else. You know? Well, all, I mean, almost all of them would have, and many of them will say, oh, we don't object to, we're not anti-vaxxers, we don't object to vaccines, Vax- we know that vaccines work, but what, there are lots of questions about this vaccine, you know, it was rushed through, it's very fast, it's new, it's mRNA, it changes your DNA, I heard that it can make you infertile, you know, there's all these rumours that are going around that have absolutely no basis in fact, but yeah. they sound close enough to the truth that if you're an inquiring mind and you think of yourself as not being a, a follower, then maybe they're just enough to to make you not not get this vaccine. I mean, I the only thing that I can come back to saying to those people is I will grant you that drug companies are manipulative, profit hung, profit-making entities that you shouldn't trust, but that doesn't mean that the data isn't true and that doesn't mean that the the real world results of having given this product to billions of people so far uh, are worth heeding. Like there are no big side effects. There is, there is no big problem, but I mean, that's not, that doesn't seem to cut much, much mustard. No, if, and yeah. look, it's also, I mean, the issue is as well that they, people with that mindset, I mean, they don't look at the other side. So the other side we, we talked about with climate, the fragility of our civilization, the other side of the, the you know uh, vaccination story is the danger that COVID presents to us. Yeah, yeah. So we've got to balance and weigh risks, and that that's that's kind of important, I think. Tim, it's great to talk to you. Thank you for your time, uh, and thank you for for all your work. And uh, enjoy fishing up on the Hawkesbury. I'm jealous. Thanks so much, Josh. It's been a pleasure. 